Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a Middle Passage Remembrance Ceremony and Historic Marker Unveiling will be held Saturday, February 7th in St. Augustine. People from all over the state, actually from all over the nation, will come and mark the beginning of American history in this way. We'll discuss Sunny South Farms in DeSoto County. So we have a lot of these original hunting journals uh, and letters back home, but we also have uh, original uh, logbooks. And we'll visit the Turnbull Plantation exhibit at the New Smyrna Museum. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Nearly two million Africans died while being transported from Africa to slavery in the Western Hemisphere from the 16th through the 19th centuries. The Middle Passage Ceremonies and Port Markers Project is preserving the memory of those who perished and those who survived the journey. Ann Chin is director of the project. The Middle Passage itself uh, is a horrendous uh, voyage across um, from Africa to anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. In the United States, there are actually 41 ports ranging from New Hampshire to Texas. And this would be the place where Africans uh, first arrived. But during the Middle Passage, these people uh, were chained. Uh, Most of them were kept uh, below deck, particularly the men. Uh, They were naked. I mean, people think that they were maybe wrapped up in some sort of... No, it was from the beginning. Some lasted uh, on this voyage from six weeks to four months, depending upon whether or not the captain had decided um, to have a full cargo or eventually um, to maybe go with what they would call a light packing Africans were forced from their homeland and shoved naked into crowded cargo holds of ships. As Ann Chin explains, the horrors of the Middle Passage journey to slavery didn't end there. Halfway through the voyage, it usually ran out of good water. Uh, The food was um, 
contaminated, uh, inedible. Uh, and originally, they would use what they called biscuits hardtack. Um, and then the merchants decided so that there would be probably more who would survive the passage, that they would pick up the food on the continent. People would have the food that they were familiar with, that being yams and porridge. Uh, but all of it, after a period of time, was terrible. Um, dehydration was a problem, uh, all sorts of diseases because the place was filthy. 25% of those uh, people coming across in the Middle Passage, because that's what it's called, 25% um, were children, uh, which, again, most people don't understand. And by the end of uh, what would be the slave trade history, um, the preference was for children and women as an investment. Uh, men even though they were preferred initially because of the labor required. Uh, women were seen better because they could produce children, and children were seen as better enslaved because they would resist and could be conditioned. At least that was the presumption. Not all people captured and imprisoned on the Middle Passage ships were willing to find out what was waiting for them across the ocean, and they committed suicide. Many others died from disease on the journey. Those who survived faced a life of slavery. Personally, I think that the records underestimate, and particularly when we start talking about Florida, where there was continued importation of Africans well beyond uh, even 1821, when uh, Florida becomes formally a U.S. territory and then under the constitutional ban. Uh, people were smuggled in. And then the last uh, arrival of Africans in Florida was in uh, 1860. Florida changed hands from the Spanish to the British and back to the Spanish until it became a United States territory in 1821. Ann Chin says that makes compiling records of the slave trade in Florida challenging. What is limited about the information that we have is that it doesn't cover uh, the first period when of what they call the Spanish, the first Spanish period, which would be from 1565 until uh, the British uh, assume it in 1763. So that the most detailed records that we have for Florida are actually during the British uh, period. The Spanish kept good records, and we have depended in particular upon uh, both Jane Landers, Professor Jane Landers at Vanderbilt, um, and Daniel Schaefer f to uh, fill in the Florida information in terms of um, the ships that brought in. But, you know, I always like to stress that Florida has the longest presence of Africans of any state in the United States from 1565. Africans, both free and enslaved arrived in 1565. To coincide with the 450th anniversary of St. Augustine as the oldest continuous European settlement in North America, a Middle Passage Remembrance Ceremony is being held Saturday, February 7th at noon outside the Castillo de San Marcos. What we do, the Middle Passage Ceremonies in Port Marcos Project, goes to each one of the 41 port cities or sites 
and approaches residents or those who are in charge in places like Jamestown, Virginia, New Yorktown, Virginia, where there are markers. Uh, we did those in 2013. We go to the community, we go to the historical societies and say, this is your history. Uh, what we would personally like to do is encourage a remembrance ceremony. Uh, this practice is expanding. Uh, I would say, and with much regret, that uh, the African-American community as a whole has walked away from its ancestors. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the association of enslavement. Um, there's shame. Um, there is um, just an uncomfortable feeling. Uh, a lot of these communities now also are predominantly uh, people of European descent. We take Perth Amboy in New Jersey, which is predominantly Latino, so that there is a disconnect. And our argument is that Africans and their descendants built this country. So that if you're in Perth Amboy, no matter who you are, you know, you are benefiting from the labor of people who uh, were brought here, uh, certainly against their will, but they persisted and, and they developed this nation. So that here in St. Augustine, um, I, I find it curious that there is always the sense that during the first Spanish period, there's like, oh no, Africans weren't enslaved and there's this emphasis on Fort Mose, and then it's like it's the British fault you know, that Africans were enslaved. And what we're trying to say is that Africans have been a part of this culture and part of this history. The Middle Passage Remembrance Ceremony acknowledges the lives of Africans impacted by the transatlantic slave trade, but Ann Chin says the event is for all people. One of the things that we do at the ceremony, there are two crucial things, I think. One is bringing in Native Americans, and we ask them, for the permission to hold the ceremony. And when we did this initially in Baltimore, the question was, why? I mean, why are you coming to us? We didn't have any part in this. And I go, but this was your land. This, you are the keepers of, you're the first people. So there is a relationship between the first and the forced. And so we're trying to do it right. So we're asking permission to hold the ceremony. And the ceremony usually requires a historical statement, prayers by diverse religious uh, groups, and then the libation, which is pouring of water. And we ask people to simply pour some water, name their ancestors, you know, go back as far as you can, and honor them. I mean, it's, it's a human thing to do. You know, uh, in Africa, this would be considered the second burial. It's a more ceremonial burial. You know, there's the first one that has to deal with just the decomposition, et cetera, and it's done quickly. Uh, the second one may take anywhere from 40 days, and for us, it's, for a lot of people, it's 350 years, but it should happen. We had our first ceremony here in St. Augustine in October of 2013, right at the plaza. Uh, it was tremendous. There were about 150 people who came. And we're hoping that February 7th, 2015, that people from all over the state, actually from all over the nation, will come and mark the beginning of American history in this way.
An historic marker identifying St. Augustine as a slave trade port will be unveiled at 3 p.m. on February 7th at the Mission Nombre de Dios. Ann Chin. And I'm glad that we're going to do St. Augustine as the first ceremony in 2015. We're doing Boston, Faneuil Hall, in August of 2015, you know, so that these are iconic, I think, iconic places in U.S. history. We've done Jamestown and we've done Yorktown. So that in terms of the initial places, uh, we're beginning to mark them so that when people come to look at that history of, of where the America, quote, began, uh, as it is now, the diversity uh, is highlighted. It's understood a lot better. Um, and I think that's important. Africans found a better life in Spanish-controlled Florida than in the British colonies, even under slavery. Many slaves from British colonies to the north escaped into Florida. The Spanish history in terms of enslavement is a little bit different from, from the British. I mean, you could, in fact, work your way, uh, buy your way out of enslavement uh, under most of the Spanish uh, societies. You could not uh, under the British. I mean, Georgia was founded literally as a buffer between the British colonies that had enslavement and Florida, which in order to undermine the British colonies offered uh, freedom to anyone who would escape. So Florida's history is really very complex, very contradictory. You know, you have, at the same time that you have enslavement, you also have uh, people who are escaping and obtaining freedom, you know, so that it's, it's and then Florida has the Bahama, I mean, it's a Caribbean uh, influence, and that's been ongoing. So I think that in a lot of ways, Florida looks... Its history looks more reflective, more real uh, than a lot of other states, and it's been 450 years. Ann Chin is director of the Middle Passage Remembrance Ceremony and Historic Markers Project. The ceremony and marker unveiling on February 7th in St. Augustine is free and open to the public. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, explore our archive, and read our blog posts. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Got a rifle on the hunting rack, best friend in the back, old hound riding shotgun. I got a camouflage mud truck, looking for a big buck, creeping through the dusky dawn. Big bright floodlights cutting through the dark night, make a path to the deer stand. Pray to God Almighty, quiet as I can be, waiting for the aftermath. We've been dreaming all year for the season, waiting for the leaves to fall. We'll be looking for a 12 point book man, he'll be chasing that dough. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at documents from Sunny South Farms in DeSoto County. Yeah, that's right. In this uh, collection, we're looking at the Sunny South Farms Fort Ogden collection. Uh, dates back to about the early 20th century. And Fort Ogden is actually a, a second Seminole, was originally a second Seminole War period fort established by the uh, federal government uh, while they were engaged in, in fighting with the Seminole Indians. It's located in the southwestern portion of DeSoto County. Uh, in At the time, it was a very uh, a rural area and, and remains so today. In fact, uh, DeSoto County's, some of the major industries are... Uh, uh, the uh, cattle, citrus uh, industry, and, and there's still quite a bit of, of hunting that goes on um, in that area. But the journal we're looking at today uh, was from a gentleman by the name of Thomas F. Russell. And Thomas Russell was uh, originally born in New York uh, and at some point in, in early on in his life became enchanted with the, the lure of, of wild Florida uh, and decided to travel down to southwest Florida, ended up buying a partial share in a grove that was called Lawndale Grove grows in 1895. Uh, and then within the five years of, of purchasing that uh, section, he loved it so much, he bought the entire groves and changed the name to Sunny South Farms. Uh, and they began the citrus operations. But a lot of his time, it seems like, was spent out into the, in the wilderness. Uh, he, he seems to, to have really enjoyed uh, hunting and, and fishing and, and being out in, in the wild, uh, uh, wild Florida. And one journal you have here from 1907 uh, describes uh, a hunting trip, right? Yeah, that's right. And and these weren't uncommon, especially in the early 20th century. When people came down to Florida, they often recorded their uh, experiences in some type of journal. Oftentimes, these journals were sent to friends who were back, still living back up north who had maybe never been to Florida because they wanted to extra, explain how uh, uh, fascinating the, the flora and fauna and this uh, Florida experience really was. And the journal we're looking at today dates from uh, late December uh, 1907, uh, follows the, uh, the hunting party for about a week into early January of 1908. And it's really fascinating because the uh, the group travels south quite a ways to towards the Caloosahatchee River down in, in Lee County um, and spend most of their nights out in the open. Uh, they run into a few uh, pioneer families who will help them find fresh water. And, and uh, he mentions that each uh, family is, is showing him uh, where the best hunting spots are. And, of course, they travel to those spots and have no luck. So even though they spend a week out in the wilderness, they see uh, no deer, no bears. Uh, but live off of squ 
squirrel alone. And he says that that type of diet uh, can kill a man very soon. So um, this particular uh, trip, it, it, it seems like, was started out, you know, um, with a lot of high expectations, but uh, they ended up back at Fort Ogden, back on the farm, uh, a little bit disappointed. But, uh, of course, this wasn't Russell's last trip. He would go out and, and make a few more uh, in the years to come. Now, Sunny South Farms wasn't just for hunting. It was an actual farm. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, he was couldn't just use the property for hunting alone. There had to be some sort of economic activity. And that's what the second half of this collection is. So we have a lot of these original hunting journals uh, and letters back home. But we also have uh, original uh, log books, day books, what they referred to at the time. And that was a record of uh, products that were being produced on the farm. Here we're looking at a small book uh, that measures about 12 inches by 4 inches. It's uh, on lined paper. And this is a record of all fruit that was being shipped out. Uh, and on some of the uh, really busy months, they were shipping out thousands of crates of, uh, of fruit uh, up north to, uh, to northern markets. So it was a fairly lucrative business to be in. In fact, uh, Thomas Russell's brothers were also all involved in the business. So at some point, the, the family started slowly moving south to, uh, south to, to uh, Florida, joined Thomas Russell, uh, and uh, took t- uh, turns over the years uh, managing the groves. So while these uh, groves were important, it does look like from these journals, though, that uh, hunting was, uh, was these folks' first love. I think that's absolutely right. It, it first brought Russell down to southwest Florida, and uh, in the decades to come, even after the First World War, when many of the brothers were uh, over in Europe fighting, they all came back to Florida and uh, really enjoyed the, uh, the, the wild Florida frontier. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Scotsman Andrew Turnbull settled New Smyrna Beach during the British period of Florida. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at an exhibit focusing on the Turnbull Plantation. These are all things that came from various sites here in New Smyrna, and everything the New Smyrna settlers had was something that Turnbull gave them, and he had it shipped over from, from England, or he bought things in St. Augustine. That was Dr. Roger Grain, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology from the University of South Florida. He gave me a tour of the Turnbull Plantation exhibit at the New Smyrna Museum. For roughly 20 years during the 18th century, East and West Florida became colonies of the British Empire. This time overlapped with the American Revolution. Andrew Turnbull was a Scottish physician who came to New Smyrna and started a plantation. The most numerous pieces from the exhibit are the shards of earthenware that were excavated at the Turnbull site. These are the remnants of plates and bowls the colonists use in their daily lives. Dr. Grange tells us how items like these inform us about the people who lived during that time. Common inexpensive varieties of pottery would be the lead glazed earthenware, the combed slipware, and some of the coarser stonewares. The stuff that 
uh, people of a higher social standing would use the white salt clay stoneware and the uh, creamware or, or pearlware. And, and a few people might have some Chinese export porcelain, and, but uh, it wasn't very, very uh, a thing that common people would use in their, in their daily life. Unlike other plantations in the southeast, Turnbull used indentured servants from Europe and not slave labor. Dr. Grange explains. He does mention buying clothes, uh, shoes, and things like that for the settlers, but he also admitted in one context that his settlers were less well-clothed than the slaves at the other plantations, which means he wasn't treating them very, very well at all. The people he had working here were indentured. You know, they signed up papers that they will work for him for varying periods of time, seven to ten years, and that at the end of that time of their service, they might be given land, they might stay on. He hoped that people would love it here and would stay on, but the colony did not last but 11 years. Turnbull depended on the production of indigo for the success of his plantation. Indigo is a natural blue dye extracted from plants. Dr. Daniel Murphy from the University of Central Florida tells us about Turnbull and his turn to indigo as a cash crop. Turnbull's idea was that New Smyrna, this plantation, it would be self-sufficient. So one of the things they try to grow is food. Also, he actually had visions of, you know, perhaps vineyards or other more kind of exotic uh, um, produce as well. But indigo was settled on because this was, you know, indigo in the, the 18th century Atlantic world was a very hot commodity. And it was used for dyeing, it was used for, for coloring purposes, whatever you wanted to use. Could be clothing, also could be um, works of art, things like that. So you could use it for a variety of purposes. But it's kind of hard by today's standards to understand its value at the time. But you have to remember, up until the 18th century, people largely were living in a world without color, at least in their clothing and in the things they saw. So even though you know this, this, this blue color might seem kind of, well, what's the big deal by today's standards at the time, was very, very... Um, desired and therefore very lucrative. Turnbull was probably a better physician than Planter, as his economic in Denver only lasted 11 years, and throughout that time wasn't a successful enterprise. Dr. Murphy tells us why this was the case. Even if you could produce something of value, getting it out in an economical way was very, very difficult. St. Augustine was the major port, but St. Augustine wasn't a great port for this stuff. And even though by today's standards we would think New Smyrna's not, not too far, you know, from less than 100 miles from St. Augustine, something like that, the, the passage, the way you could get your goods to St. Augustine was very, very difficult. You know, there weren't roads, or the roads that were there were, were dirt roads. And that's why you never really see, during the colonial period, Florida develop as some kind of major economic exporter. You might could produce something, but getting it out profitably is very, very difficult. This was a perpetual problem for all the plantations in Florida. I interviewed Dr. Roger Grange and Dr. Daniel Murphy and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Roger Grange and Dr. Daniel Murphy, and I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please come back again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can join our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society to get our daily posts today in Florida history and much more. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.